This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. So when your kingdom starts falling apart, here's what you say. Maybe not out loud, but down deep inside. You say, God, I've done everything you've asked me to, and this is the life I get. I could get this mess on my own. I was faithful to my husband, God, and he still cheated on me. So God, if this is the way you operate, I'm going to try life on my own. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me Today. Today. Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today, Pastor Jeff completes a message about friends in hard times. He's turning, of course, to the book of Job to help with this topic. Pastor Jeff continues to explain that God uses our trials to help us be His ambassadors and to draw people to God. If you've missed any messages, you just need to search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you listen to podcasts. Here's Pastor Jeff to finish this message. Job is very frustrated and his response comes in Job chapter 6. He says, if only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, It would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends. Job says, Eliphaz, you're severely underestimating how much pain I'm in. You think you can solve it with some mystical experience or philosophical argument. I'm telling you that my problem, my suffering is much more complex. And besides that, no matter if I'm struggling so much that I've lost it, that I've gone crazy, a real friend would stick by me. And then Job responds in Job 6, 24, teach me and I will hold my peace and cause me to understand. What's he saying? Now, this, is, this is important. Here's what Job is saying. Same thing you do. God, if you will show me why I am suffering this way and you will give me an explanation for all the things that are happening around me and you show me how this is gonna work out, God, if you'll give me an exhaustive explanation for all of this, then I think I can be able to man up and endure it. And that's Job's plea. I'm trying to get you to see something. Let me go back and connect it. We're ambassadors. That's the calling on every life. You're a priest of God. God's been equipping you since the day you were born. And he's going to write some painful stories in your life. And he's going to deliver you and you're going to have a compelling story. And those who are on the outside looking in are going to be drawn to your Savior. But if you don't have the right group of people around you to guide you toward this direction, the default system of humanity is to tuck and run. And so, even though Job's friends made all these mistakes, they got something really right. I mean, they were good at this. Go back to Job 2, verse 11. We read already that when they had heard the news of Job, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize. 
Can I, can I tell you about this word sympathize for a moment? It's the Hebrew word nud. It means to rock. Have you ever gotten such bad news or you were waiting on to hear good or bad news that you just sat and you rocked? It's all you could do. You just rocked. When I thought that my son Delaney had leukemia, I was in the waiting room waiting to hear from the doctor the results of the test, and all I did in the waiting room was this. So when they first arrived, they're just rocking. Verse 12, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep out loud, tore their robes, sprinkled dust on their heads. So now they know when they first see Job, they can't go to Job and say, don't worry, it's all going to be okay. Because he's in such disarray. They know by telling him that lie, it's not going to help him. But then look what happens in verse 13. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. This is called sitting Shiva. And it still happens in the Jewish culture today. That when you come up on somebody whose suffering is great, for seven days you just sit with him. And you do not say a word. I think it's what Paul had in mind in Romans 12 when he said, mourn with those who mourn. He didn't say fix those who mourn, give really good advice to those who mourn. Remind mourning people they shouldn't be mourning at all. No, he says just sit and mourn and cry and pray and plead their case. Do you know that's what people want? My buddy Mike Masterson that I talk about all the time, he's in Chicago, been in Chicago all week. Now Mike is very close to his father. And his father is 95 and dying. Because I lost both my parents at a young age. I know what it is to lose a mom and a dad. And I know that the best way to encourage him is not try to explain it to him. So every morning I'll just send him a text of scripture. To allow the spirit of God to use the word of God. At the right time and the right place for victory. And so I'll send him something like Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things of God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And I let Mike know that I'm pleading his case. Now, do you remember what Jesus did in the garden when the Bible says that he removed himself from the disciples about a stone's throw and he got down on his knees and what did he pray? If it be your will, let this cup pass. Three times, basically, Jesus prays this prayer. Is there another way? Is there another way? Is there another way? And in Hebrews, we're told that there is but one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And what Jesus does for you and me is what he expects us to do for others. He says to the Father, is there another way? Is there another way? Is there another way? When Mike knows that I'm on my knees and I'm pleading his case and I'm saying, God, is there another way? Oh, no, let Mike go. Oh, no, let Mike go. Is there another way? Let me say it again. You do not belong to you. You belong to God. He has the sovereign right to use you for his purposes. And we are the ambassadors and priests of God, which means he's going to send a little rain into our lives. And he's going to write a compelling story into your life so that those who are on the outside looking in would be drawn in. Now, if this were just theory for me, that'd be one thing, but it's not. The toughest, toughest two years of my life 
was about four or five years ago. Most of you know about it. And I keep telling you I'm not going to talk about it anymore, but let me tell you why I keep bringing it up. Because I still get emails and texts from people, please help me, Pastor Jeff. Now, why is that? Why do they ask me? Because they know I have a compelling story. I would wake up every morning about 2.30, just shaking. My heart was racing. I thought I was dying. I thought I was going to die young like my mom of a cardiac myopathy. So I said, well, this is my death. I really got to a point in my life during that period that I started to understand why people would contemplate suicide. I thought if my life is going to be like this the rest of my life, I don't really want to live. You say, our pastor? I didn't say I'm contemplating suicide. I told you that I started to understand why. Two years. But I had a friend. And as much as I hate to admit it, it was Dane Johnson. <laughs> Dane did not give me platitudes. Dane did not simply give me some kind of mystical interpretation of some experience he'd had. He looked me in the eye man to man. And this is what he said to me. Pastor Jeff, when you get to the point where you can say to God, God, I pray that you would not take this away from me until I have learned everything that you want me to learn and mean it, you will not be healed. How did they know that? Because he had suffered the same thing 15 years earlier. So I thought I had found a golden nugget. God, I pray that you would not remove this from me until you've done everything you need to do. Amen. I must have prayed that prayer for 18 months. And then finally, I was so much at the end of myself. I just couldn't do it anymore. I would get up backstage after the third service. I'd drive home and Dane would call me because he knew I may not make it home. Sometimes I'd pull on the side of the road and just kind of catch my breath. You have no idea what this is like if you've never had anxiety disorder. And when somebody comes and tells you, well, you just need to settle down. Then I have uh, a righteous indignation disorder. <laughs> and I'm going to slap you in the name of Jesus. But nevertheless, it, that's not how it works. My respect and love for those who are going through mental illness totally changed. God, God wrote a story into my life so that I'd get out of my own way and stop this arrogance and start having sympathy for those who are hurting. Dane told me at the end of that whole experience, God is using this for the advancement of the gospel. When he said that, I remembered Philippians 1. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. So Paul says, I'm strapped to a Roman guard, to the Praetorian guard. I'm abused every day. I can go nowhere. I'm starving. I have very little food and water, but I am here for the progress and advancement of the gospel. Here's the problem. Although you and I would never say it out loud, down deep inside somewhere, we have the same theology of Job's friends. If I'm good, God will bless me. If I'm bad, he will curse me. And you severely overestimate your own goodness because you actually think you've been good. So when your kingdom starts falling apart, here's what you say. Maybe not out loud, but down deep inside, you say, God, I've done everything you've asked me to, and this is the life I get. 
I don't think so. I could get this mess on my own. I was faithful to my husband, God, and he still cheated on me. I've remained sexually pure, and I still don't have a husband or a wife. I didn't take that job because even though I was going to make more money, I knew I would have to sacrifice my morals and ethics. But here I am. I did the right thing, and I still don't have a job. So God, if this is the way you operate, I'm going to try life on my own. I got an email a couple of years ago from a young guy who said, I've tried to do everything that God asked me, and I still don't have a girlfriend. This is how we work. Forget this, God. After all my prayers and faithfulness and my life turns out this way, no. Now, what is the fundamental issue here? I've said it three weeks in a row. Might as well say it a fourth. We call them selfies because we don't know how to spell narcissism. (laughs) We still think it's all about us. Rick Warren has written a book called The Purpose Driven Life that has now sold more copies than any other book, religious book other than the Bible. And the very first page of the very first chapter, what does he say? It's not about you. God, if you're not on my team any more than this, then I'll get my own team. And God says, oh, wait a minute. I've already shown you that I'm on your team because I gave up what was most precious to me so I would not lose you. The real question is, are you on my team? 1 Corinthians, you're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now let's end this together. Job's three friends didn't say all the right stuff. Matter of fact, they blew it like we blow it, but they did at first sit quietly. And Job did feel like he had some friends that would go before the throne of God. And because of that experience, because his friends didn't help him with his questions, he cries out to God and just keeps asking question after question, God, please. And then God speaks. And God says to Job, where were you when I created the foundations of the world? Most of you know that statement, but do you know why he made it? He made it to force Job to open up within his own assumptions. Job's assumptions included this. If I had an exhaustive, complete understanding of my pain, if I knew why this was happening and what God was going to do with it, then I'd be able to endure it. And God says, really? Do you know how many things that happen to you every day in your life for which you do not have an exhaustive understanding, yet you readily accept it and go on with your life? You don't understand how the sun rises and sets. You don't understand the vastness of the constellation. You've never been to the depths of the ocean. There are places in this universe you've never even been understood or seen, and yet you readily receive them every day. You bask in the light of the sun. You enjoy the rain, but you don't understand it all. Your pain is no different, Job, because there's a point which the finite stops and the infinite begins. And something happened to Job because the next statement he makes is what? Before I had heard of you with my ears, but now I've seen you with my eyes. Job says, wow, in this tragedy, before I thought I knew who you were, now I see you because God had revealed himself to Job as revealer and comforter in the middle of the most difficult circumstance of his life. And in the end, what does Job say? I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand upon the earth. Oh, man. Job says, I'm never going to understand all this because I'm not God, but here's what I know for sure. One day, my Redeemer is going to stand on the earth, and he's going to have the last word about everything. And whatever 
Whatever it is that God has asked me to give up, he will replace to an infinitely greater degree. So what's the message? How about we end with the story? My thinking changed dramatically in my early 20s. Remember, I spent my 20s in Africa, my 30s in New Zealand, and my 40s now here. I met a woman by the name of Gloria. And I've hinted at her story a few times, but I've never told you the full scope of it. So would you let me do that for a second here? Gloria was a lady that was introduced to me by a lady in the church that I pastored in Harare. She says, I want you to come meet this lady, Gloria. So we met at the Italian cafe. We had coffee and I met Gloria. Gloria, as soon as I walked in the room, was like this. I thought, wow, this is going to be interesting. So Gloria said, well, what do you, so you're the pastor. I said, yeah. And she gave me that look that I've seen many, many times, especially from Aussies. Why are you wasting your life? Okay. We talked a little bit and I wondered why I was there. I saw this church member who had introduced me to Gloria probably, I don't know, three weeks later. And I said, hey, why'd you have me come to the meeting? She said, well, I was just hoping that she would see something compelling in you and want to come to church. And I thought, great. I wasn't exactly on my best behavior. You know, in those days, if you treated me like that, I just thought, hmm, well, back at you. <laughs> it was more of a battle than a love for people. So she came back and she said, you know, I've finally convinced Gloria to come to Bible study. She won't come to church, but she'll come to Bible study at my house. But she just sits there like this. I said, why does she come? She goes, you know, I don't know, but she keeps coming back. And she just sits there like this. And when people say something about God, she goes, huh. I mean, man, talk about ruining the chemistry of a Bible study. Jesus healed the blind man. Huh. <laughs> Wait a minute. That still happens, doesn't it? <laughs> so, I don't know, six to eight weeks go by. I'm preaching one weekend. I notice Gloria's at the very back, just standing on the wall. You know, she's not going to sit down. Just going to stand on the wall. Quick escape. Invitation time comes. She starts walking up the aisle. She walks right to me. Just tears streaming everywhere. <laughs> I remember thinking, aha. <laughs> Jesus got you. <laughs> you know. So she told me a little bit of her story. She, she became a Christ follower. She became a Christian at church every Sunday for the next two months. And then she was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer. And man, she started to go downhill fast. I was young and I didn't know how to treat her. I didn't know what to say. Do I go to her house and do I say, hey, do you want to talk about how, you know, how, how a good and loving God could allow pain and suffering in the world? You know? I never had the bravery to do that. I just would go over and talk to her and pray with her. And then finally, I don't know, it was a couple of months in, she said, Jeff, I'm dying. I need you to baptize me. Would you baptize me here in my bathtub with all my friends? I said, sure. So we baptized her. A couple of weeks went by and she says, look, I'm going, I'm going to go back to Bulawayo. That's my home. I'm going to go to Bulawayo to die. I want to be around my siblings and my family. So I'm telling you now, and I'd, I'd like you to do the funeral when it's time. Would you do that? I said, sure. Yeah, yeah. She went back to Bulawayo with her brothers and sisters. A few weeks go by, and it really was a few weeks. I mean, she was going downhill so fast. She, uh, she called and she said, hey, I'm obviously not dead yet. So I don't need the funeral quite yet. But I wondered if you'd come down for a few days and sit with me. I said, absolutely. Got on a plane, went to Bulawayo, went to her house, and just sat with her. 
I thought about what I'd say to her all the way on the plane. You know, how do I do this? You know, because I'm afraid that some people would think, man, don't become a Christian. You get sick and die. And I wanted to talk to her about that, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. So finally I got the nerve and I started going that direction. I couldn't have said more than maybe 10, 20 words. She put up her hand and she looked me right in the eye and she said, young Jeffrey. Uh Uh-oh, that's what my mom used to say when I was in trouble. (laughs) Young Jeffrey. She goes, I know you're a pastor and I know you love me, but you have no idea what this is like until you go through it. I'm not mad at God. Not mad at God at all. In fact, God has revealed some things to me that you will never see until you get here. Tell me about them. I changed over from pastor to, hey, tell me, tell me. I can't do that. Why? Because they're unique to me. It's what God has done for me. I have seen things. I know what's coming. And when you get to this point, if I said it now, it would just confuse you. But when you get to this point, God will be with you. So that turned me at a very young age. And I started noticing that when I was with dying people who were strong Christians, the fear was never there of death. It's like God moves in on that last piece of your life and says, don't worry, I got you. She said, Jeff, when I die, I want you to preach the funeral. When you preach it, I want you to preach the gospel because I have three brothers and two sisters and they don't know. I don't want you just to talk about how good I want you to preach the gospel. They need to hear what I've heard. I said, okay, all right. She died. I preached the funeral. And I got to a point in the sermon where I said, look, I was almost apologetic. Again, I was young and stupid. Now I'm just old and stupid, but I was young and stupid then. So I, <laughs> I said, I, I, I was told to do this, and so I'm going to do it. Gloria asked if I'd preach the gospel. So here's the gospel in a clear, succinct way. And after the service was over, all five siblings came up. And they said, uh, Pastor Jeff, thank you for being with our sister. Could you, could you walk us through this thing about Jesus again? I said, well, what is it you didn't get? Well, what we really don't get is how she was able to respond the way she did in the last days of her life. That's what we really want to understand. I said, let me tell you why. She may not know, and I borrowed a line. She may not know what's on the other side, but she knows who's on the other side. And it's this Jesus. And after, I'm not going to lie to you, it's probably two hours of discussion. All five became Christ followers. Fifteen years later, I go back to Zimbabwe for the first time, and I see two of them. And they're all still living a godly life. And they would tell you it's because, not the way their sister lived but the way she died. That's an ambassador with a compelling story that when you're on the outside looking in, you can't help but to be changed. I, you, let me say it one more time. You're God's ambassador. You were not elected by the people. You were called of God. When you get to the point when you, like David, can say, do to me as it seems good to you and mean it, For the sake of the gospel, there will be a fully devoted follower of Jesus in every home in this valley. Amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me wanna
Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.